You know what? Worship has been excellent so far. It's been a big blessing today. And we're continuing our worship. The culmination with a sermon. So 11.08. We may go a little bit over. I'm going to try to abridge this and keep us close to time. But if we get over, go over and you're just so hangry that you have to leave, the Lord will forgive you. We'll carry on. We're continuing on our sermon series over the Psalms of Ascent or the Pilgrim Songs. Three times a year, under the Old Covenant, our ancestors were to go up to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship, to be reconciled to God, to have fellowship with God, to be His forgiven people. And it's in that tradition of going up three times a year, this tradition began of, um, of singing psalms. We don't know exactly when, but sometime after David, the psalms are collected and they started singing them. They would sing to prepare their heart because they were soon coming face to face with God at his temple, the place where he dwelt. Today's psalm is fairly short. I thought I would have not much to say. I have a whole bunch to say, so now I had to reduce some of that to keep us in time. But it's amazing how only three verses pack so much truth, so much reality. So let's stand together as one pilgrim church, because this is supposed to be sung together. This is rehearsed together. I reading out of the ESV, Psalm 131. It should be on the screen. There we go. So loud and proudly, let's read Psalm 131 as the people of God. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel... Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just read the word of God out loud, and you are the word. You are the living word. And this is ultimately about you. I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit, be in our presence, interpret the word for us, apply it to our hearts. Give us that pilgrim's attitude, Lord. Show yourself strong this morning. Pray that your word would encourage us, challenge us, um, be the medicine for our souls. We love you. We thank you. We can't do this without you, Lord Jesus. Glorify yourself today. We ask this because of what you did for us on the cross. Amen. You may be seated. So after reading this psalm out loud, the immediate impression, the immediate thing you can pick up from this psalm is that it deals with the condition of the heart, things concerning pride, humility, and our active role in these things. And the binding idea that holds these elements all together, or the main idea for the psalm this morning is this, pilgrims must possess their own souls. Pilgrims must possess their own souls. And when I say possess your soul, I don't mean like demonic possession or anything like that. What I mean possess, I mean is like take responsibility. You have to take responsibility for their, your soul. Christian people must take responsibility for their inner man, for their heart, for how they think and feel and all that type of stuff. You must take possession of your own soul. And we see this idea of God's people being told to be responsible for the condition of their own heart all the time in the scripture especially like in the Psalms and the Proverbs. But this one came to me this week. One example from St. Peter, uh, he tells us this. He says, make every, and when you hear it, listen to the language he used. To just, it's describing like heart conditions and thinking patterns and stuff like that. Peter says, 
make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, have these, these heart conditions, these heart postures, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, keeping your soul healthy, doing the things he's talking about, like practicing heart medicine, if you will, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, Peter is literally telling us that if we do the things he's talking about, if we take care of our inner man, our heart, mind, soul, whatever, whatever language you want to use to describe your inner landscape, your relationship with God, he says, if you do this stuff, you're going to make it. You're going to have good success in this life. You're going to have, you're going to have closeness with God. You'll be received by the Lord. Therefore, we must possess our souls, take responsibility. And we do this, we, we possess our souls by learning to simplify our lives from all the nonsense the world has to offer us. And we give attention to the things that really matter the most. And we develop true biblical spirituality. And this ultimately leads us into contentment. We gotta, gotta stop worrying about the nonsense of this life and focus on the things of, that really matter, the things of God. For the more you take responsibility for the condition of your heart, your mind, your soul, the way you think, the way you feel, all that type of stuff, you'll start recognizing the sin and the wrong thinking in your life. You will. You'll, and you'll start to ask God into each chamber of your existence. You'll seek God's spirit to intervene in all areas of your life, things like your work, your kids, your marriage, even your taxes. Romans 13 talks about even Christians have this thing about taxes. It's no joke. So God's, God cares about all the stuff of life. He wants to be involved in it. There's no spiritual and mundane life with Christians. It's like we all just are under the banner of the Lord. And the more you ask God to intervene in all these areas of your life, the more you do that, peace and contentment will slowly replace your worries, your fears, your angst, your anxieties. Your thoughts will no longer be focused on self-pleasure and deception but your, and your own goals or agenda, but you'll, you'll want to be pleasing to God and you'll want to love your neighbor as yourself. Transformation. In short, life becomes meaningful when you take possession of your soul, take responsibility for your heart and its shortcomings, and you turn to God with these things, you're going to start seeing your life will be meaningful. Relationships will become a priority rather than just things to benefit you. And the worship of Christ in an unconditional manner will be joy-filled and filled with glory. But all this has to begin somewhere. And in God's plan for the transformation of his people into the image of his Son... Possessing our souls or taking responsibility for the condition of your heart begins with rejection of pride. It's our first preaching point. We're refusing haughtiness. This idea that there's no place in the Christian life for pride, arrogance, or haughtiness. Verse 1 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me church, this thing called pride, arrogance, haughtiness, well, you know, different terms, but same idea. It kills the soul. It kills the soul. The Bible warns us it really does. This is because pride 
prevents you from even beginning the journey of faith. Because a prideful person is blind and they see no need for a savior. They see no need to bow to Jesus Christ and acknowledge his righteousness. They see no need for a savior because they don't see their sin for what it is. They think they're good despite, that, despite the fact that the evidence is stacked against them. Why do people who lie all the time think they're not liars? It don't make sense. But that's what pride does. It's deception. And so prideful people, they hate God, the scripture says. They hate God and they hate the God that tells them who they really are. And they remain in their darkness. The blind leading the blind. And church, there are so many Bible verses that warn us about pride, arrogance, haughtiness, all those types of things. So many. But they can all be reduced to this one sentence of scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's, it's trite, it's short, but it's so true. Think about that. God opposes proud people. And pride, though, is not just an issue for those who have not been baptized into Christ. It's not just for those who aren't in church. Like, all oh, those prideful people haven't come to Jesus yet. Pride is a real threat for Christians. It's a universal evil, even for us. Because think about it. This psalm that we just read is written for people making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. And here they're talking about pride and humility and all that stuff. Pride can creep back into our lives. It's like a latent cancer or a latent virus in your blood just waiting to reactivate, waiting to come back and destroy you. Therefore, church, we must take possession of our souls, take responsibility for prideful thoughts and ways, and deal with them quickly because these things are destructive. They come back to ruin your relationships, come back to ruin your walk with God. Pride is a real threat to the people of God. And the way we combat pride in our life, as the psalmist says, is this, that we don't lift up our eyes. We don't lift up our hearts and occupy ourselves with things that are too great and things that are too marvelous for us. You know, when I read this, I got a crazy picture, but you know when you're having dinner parties and there's that one friend that's going to come to the dinner party that's going to talk politics stuff and ruin the dinner party and you really don't want them coming, but you got to invite them because, you know, they're family. And they watch Tucker Carlson a couple of times or CNN a couple of times and all of a sudden they're like a foreign policy expert on the war in Ukraine and Asia-Pacific issues. And, but a week before, they didn't know where Ukraine was on a map, but all of a sudden they're like, they know it all. That's like the image I got of like that crazy friend that does it at the dinner parties. You know, too often we occupy ourselves with issues that are far too great for us, too complex for us. And then we assume we have it all figured out. And we begin to think ourselves as a superior person. Why can't everybody else get it? I mean, clearly your friend solved homeless problems, right? Clearly your friend knows how to deal with immigration, right? And all this, these lofty, huge issues of global perspective. And they got it figured out. How come you don't? It's, just, it's obnoxious. And when they begin to run their mouth, they really prove their pride and their arrogance. And it's just like, man, you fool. You have no idea what you're talking about. We often get caught up in nonsense like that. Matters that are too great for us and we think we got life figured out. Not saying we can't have opinions, but the day we think we understand how the world should work and tell everybody else, it's like, it's a, it's a dangerous place to be. Or maybe pride can come up when we chase after vain things. That's a common theme in the Bible. Things that are high and lofty things. Destructive goals the Bible talks about is like grasping for the wind. You ever try to grasp at the wind? Trying to reach for things that are too high for you? When you read Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, it talks about that a lot. Things like, I will be rich whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be rich. 
or I will do whatever it takes to be, have an important and respected position, or maybe you're chasing after beauty and your self-worth comes from beauty or self-image and all those types of things. You know, we, we, that's a prideful lifestyle, all those ideas, because we're basically saying through our actions that God, these things are my all pursuit and they're more important than you and I know how to live, so don't tell me what I should do, God. Because he says don't pursue these things, so when we are pursuing them, clearly we think we know better than Jesus. It's a dangerous place to be. It is pride. And the worst part about pride, the worst of all of it, especially for Christians who go down these roads, is that uh, pride, it still is blinding. Pride, prideful pursuits blind Christians still. We may not even be aware of the foolishness we're pursuing because we end up being like the frog in the pot. We don't even know we're boiling before it too late because we're blinded by our own prideful ambitions to pursue things God says not to do. So just on a practical level, as we learn to possess our souls and take responsibility for the pride in our life, do you have people in your life, Christian, that can tell you you're being foolish? People that can honestly look at you and say, hey, you're going this route. God says not to. This is destructive. Why are you doing this? Do you have those types of relationships with real church people and real pastors that can look at your life and be honest with you and tell you what you don't want to hear? It's not fun, but accountability like that is necessary. Because think about it, if we didn't need safeguards for pride, God wouldn't warn us about the necessity to be together and speak into one another's lives. And not only we're to possess our souls by refusing haughtiness and pride, we're also actually to practice humility. So it's not enough just to not want to be prideful. We actually have to then practice humility, our second preaching point. Verse 2 says, I haven't looked at these things. I haven't raised my eyes, but here's what I do. He says, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Church, practicing humility begins as an exercise of slamming on the brakes, getting still and silent before God, and asking him to be your only satisfaction in this life. Your only satisfaction. Because anything, any other starting point for the Christian life is vain pursuit. If Jesus is not your only all-consuming satisfaction, something else will take his place. And that leads us down the road of prideful living again. Living separate from God as if we created ourselves and we don't need him. And here the psalmist describes this humbling process using child developmental terms. I got this from a commentary. It was really good. It says, A child not yet weaned embraces his mother with the thought of food and immediate satisfaction because like they're still breastfeeding. They're constantly clawing, unsettled and without peace, screaming in the middle of the night for more, more, more. But a weaned child embraces his mother. Those who have weaned means to like go on to solid food to be able to like feed themselves and not need mother's milk and all that. It says a weaned child embraces his mother out of a desire for love, closeness, and companionship. And the process of weaning may seem strange and terrible to the child, but it is necessary for the child's development. The weaned child comes to realize that the denial of one of the mother's gifts does not mean the denial of the mother's presence. He comes to love the mother herself instead of the gift received from her. And church, this is how we're to be with God. This is our, our, part of our humility. We don't just claw at God for stuff. We don't just pray for stuff and position and all that. All. What happens is we end up just wanting the Lord 
Humility is wanting the Lord simply for who he is, for him to be our entire satisfaction. We come to him out of desire for relationship, for love, for closeness. Is that how you view Jesus in your head, the one where you finally find satisfaction and contentment? Because recognizing God, only he can satisfy your deepest need for love, companionship, and security. Only God can do that. But it takes an act of humility to come before the throne of Christ and say, Jesus, if you're not my everything, I have nothing. You'll still pursue the vain things of life, the prideful things of life. But when you come to Jesus this way, asking him to be your everything, humbling yourself before God, and confessing him as your only source, guess what? The Lord our God is faithful, and he will begin to humble you. He will. He'll learn to wean you from the world and its ways. He'll cut you off from the things that are killing you. He'll cut you off from the prideful life. He'll allow things or circumstances in your life to cut you off from the things that you relied upon so much because it's so easy as a Christian to live like an atheist. It's so easy to live as if you don't need Jesus, especially in our culture. We're surrounded by food and stuff. Like, When was the last time you really ever doubted that you were going to eat? When's the last time you really ever doubted you were going to wake up and see tomorrow. That's deception. Those are prideful thoughts. Think of the Lord's Prayer. You're praying for daily bread. Do you really believe that if God doesn't feed you, you ain't going to eat? Real implications for the Christian life. It's humility. It's recognizing God as our source. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from from England, said this, Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections, which wean us from self-sufficiency, which educate us into Christian maturity and Christ-likeness, which teach us to love God not merely when he comforts us, but to love God even when he tries us. God, in his goodness, will humble us to make us dependent upon him, because outside of Jesus Christ, there is no life. There is none. And think about it. This psalm with this childlike language This is why Jesus will say things like, truly I tell you, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This same thought strand is throughout the entire Bible. We come to God like little needy children who learn to simply rely on him and trust him. That is Christian humility at its core. We grow in humble dependence upon God and acts of humility begin to manifest in your lives. Jesus, when he was invited to a dinner party by the Pharisees, and you guys remember the Pharisees, they are the main uh, opponents of Jesus. They were very prideful. They were lovers of money. There's nothing really good to say about them in the New Testament. Jesus gets invited to a dinner party, and he sees the Pharisees competing for positions of uh, high end on the table. Like They want to be in the important positions. They want to be recognized for being awesome, very much filled with pride and arrogance. And so Jesus is like, he's going to teach them about this. It's in Luke's gospel, chapter 14. It says, now at this supper, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, he says, we tell them like they're choosing these, you know, they want to be at the best seat of the table. He tells them this parable. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowliest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And here's the lesson of the parable. For everyone who exalts himself, pride, will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's telling us nothing different than what this psalm says. If you're living a prideful and arrogant life, God opposes you. And he's very faithful, Christian, to cut us down and bring us back to square one and really show us who we are. But to those who recognize that, you know what? Without Jesus, my life is meaningless and pointless and that type of stuff. He's like, don't worry. I'm going to exalt you. You've made the good confession. Simply put, don't be proud. Don't think you're more important than others because you're not. How many times have we told our kids, like, you're the most, you're the, you're the most important kid in the universe. And then, well, that's, it's true to me because you're my kid, but that's not really true, right? You know, we're not special snowflakes like that. But we went through a generation where we told children that, that they're so special and so important. And I'm not saying your kids aren't special and important, but like, imagine if people really believe that about themselves. Like, man, I'm like the best thing since sliced bread for humanity, right? Like, people believe that. They believe they're special and important and all that. Now, you're important to God. I'm not saying that's not true, but you get the deception I'm talking about, right? It's crazy. But as we read, this promise that God raises up the humble, raises up those who know they need Christ, who realize that without Christ, they're, they're pointless and meaningless existence. When we make that humble confession of our need for Jesus, God says he will raise us up. He will exalt us. And that becomes a great promise for our Christian hope. And it spills into the last part of the verse. The, last, the third verse goes from this idea of humility to then hoping in God. So our hope is based upon this, that God will raise the humble. Verse three, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Church, our hope, our guarantee for a future is so sure because God promises to give grace, kindness, compassion, and help to the humble. Remember we read, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is our hope that when we recognize that we can't do life without Jesus, he's going to meet us with what we need and where we're at. Therefore, we must possess our souls. Take responsibility for your life, Christian. Is there pride in your life? Ask someone else to look into your life. Do a little heart check. Ask, is that true? Like, is there pride in my life? And if they're a good, faithful Christian friend, they're going to tell you the truth. Not to tear each other down, but because we love one another. Pride has no place in the heart of a pilgrim, only humility. Because as the scripture says, only the meek or the humble will inherit the earth. Prideful people will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a non-reality. And above all, this humility is a, it's a gospel issue. We're going to close with a statement on Jesus. This psalm portrays Jesus Philippians, Paul gives us the greatest verses on the humility that God himself, the Son of God, in glory of heaven, humbled himself. Let's close with this idea. This really is about Jesus. He is the perfect portrait of humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 3-11. Church, humility is foundational to the gospel. Our King, the eternal King of glory, even though he was perfect, humbled himself to the point of death for unworthy, pride-filled, sinful people like you and me because he loves us that much. And then he's so good, he doesn't leave us in our pride. He works humility in us. He makes us aware of who we are through his word. And so we need to respond to that, reject pride, embrace humility, and cling to the promise that God will be with you when you do those things because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And for you here today who do not know this humble Jesus, the king of the universe, who have not been baptized into his name, who have not received him as Lord, he's good and he's humble. He's gentle, he's lowly. And he's calling you to follow him, to know him, who this humble king is. Will you do that? Will you pursue this king? And for Christians, think through what we're talking about today. Is there pride in your life? Do you grasp for things higher than your pay grade, so to speak? The altar will be open. Let's pray. And then we'll close with some songs and be dismissed. Father God, we come before you. We just read your word and all the principles in it about we've got to take responsibility for the pride in our life and confess it before you. Help us, Lord, do this. Give us the Holy Spirit power we need to repent from pride, to see pride for its ugly head, see it for what it really is, and cry out to you to humble us. Humble us so we can live, Lord, because you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Give us the tools we need. Actually, you already have given us the tools we need. Give us the power and the, the want to, Lord, the want to. Work in our hearts today. Do great things for your namesake. Make us more beautiful like your son. We trust you in these things, Lord. In Christ Jesus we pray.